A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, listener. Welcome to episode 256 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes soon, as well as Stitcher, and even on Spotify, as well as right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman. And with me, like a rare lightsaber modification, the doctor of timelines and a Wookiee-sized Star Wars fan in his own right, our own Dr. Jim Lehane. And I am a rare Star Wars modification, or lightsaber modification. You can, uh, you can rely on me to clear out noxious weeds. <laughs> he slices, he dices, he can make a Julian fry in 42 different ways with flourish. <laughs> oh, yes. Jim, Jim, Jim. I'm so excited to be back for this one. You know, I mean, we're going to be talking about that new era of the High Republic, and it's been an exciting time in canon. Very reminiscent to the days when we went back to the Old Republic or into the future for legacy and legend story arcs. Uh, pretty exciting stuff, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to really dwelling into this, getting the, the juices flowing, getting the topic bumping, and getting going. So they have definitely uh, been pushing this uh, this era hard with three books and two comic series started within um, slightly over a month. Right. And, and you know... I'm, the thing I'm really digging is the way it's playing off each other. Like, you know, like you get your kickoff in uh, Light of the Jedi and then everything, like you had said when we were talking about the coverage of Light of the Jedi, that all these stories were taking place in the same time frame. And that's been part of the excitement for me as I've been reading each of these new stories that piggy tail off of that is where does this line up with that which i mean you know for me i'm not a big timeliner like like you and nathan are so like when you guys read this stuff i'm sure like you guys have like charts and stuff out you guys correlating data trying to figure out where things line up for me it's more like does this work to, like i come into a story and i'm i'm confused more often than not as i'm trying to place things down as i'm picking up little tiny hints from a character's conversation here or little narrative dialogue that references a date or a placement or something like that Uh, how is that working for you like is it is it tracking really well as a timeliner so far yeah it seems to be i think they've they've got it narrowed nailed down fairly well uh the the biggest question mark is when does this series take place? And all we've gotten is that it says it takes 200 years before the movies. And so people have kind of run with that. And since, since Phantom Menace is 32 years BBY before the Battle of Yavin, um, that these books must play, take place in 232 by just adding 200 to the movie. Whether that's right or not, I would assume probably that's what they're doing because Star Wars has a tendency to like to take round numbers like that and just go with it um and within the books themselves they're doing a fairly good job like we know light of the jedi takes over place over a few weeks 
uh, from start to end uh, with the dedicate mm-hmm. from the great disaster to the dedication of Starlight Beacon is a, a few weeks. And the test of courage seems to take place towards the latter part of that, those few weeks. And then the other book released into the dark takes place almost at the beginning of those. Cause even at the end of the book, they say they go to the dedication ceremony a few weeks later. And so you're, mm-hmm. you're within this time frame. They seem to be doing a fairly good job, but you're right. I, that's a hundred percent. The way I do it is I, I've anytime they give me a time reference, it kind of eases my mind until then I'm only paying attention to the time references. I don't know what else is going on in the story. I'm <laughs> like, until you give me a time reference, I cannot enjoy this book. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we plunge into Justina Ireland's A Test of Courage. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Targon's Arrogance. The galaxy is at peace, ruled by the glorious Republic and protected by the noble and wise Jedi Knights. As a symbol of all that is good, the Republic is about to launch Starlight Beacon into the far reaches of the Outer Rim. This new space station will serve as a ray of hope for all to see. But just as a magnificent renaissance spreads throughout the galaxy, so does a frightening new adversary. Now the Guardians of Peace and Justice must face a threat to themselves, the galaxy, and the Force itself. Now that, listeners, is the opening crawl that so far they've put in the front of every single one of the High Republic novels. And as I said in our Light of the Jedi coverage, I don't quite feel like the threat in this book and Light of the Jedi is the threat that we're getting. Now Into the Dark, on the other hand, I think we might be there. But the synopsis for this story is... Long before the Clone Wars, the Empire, or the First Order, the Jedi lit the way for the galaxy in a golden age known as the High Republic. Vernesta Rowe is a brand new Jedi Knight at age 16, but her first real assignment feels an awful lot like babysitting. She's been charged with supervising 12-year-old aspiring inventor Avon Staros on a luxury liner headed to the dedication of a wondrous new space station called Starlight Beacon. But early on their journey, bombs go off aboard the ship. After narrowly avoiding being sucked into the vacuum of space, Vernestra, Avon, Avon's droid, J6, and a Padawan, and an ambassador's son make it to a shuttle, but communications are out and supplies are low. They decide to land on a nearby moon, which offers them shelter, but not much more. And unbeknownst to them, danger lurks in the jungle. Dun, dun, dun. I find that an interesting synopsis because go, before going too deep into the book, they don't even mention the Padawan, um, Imri, I assume it's pronounced Imri, Imri Kentaros, um, or the ambassador's son by right. name, Honesty Wift. And those two characters I felt were the weakest out of the, the, the quadrilogy, not including the droid, five, separate. Sep- I don't know, five? <laughs> really? I, I actually enjoyed 
is it Emery Emery? Yeah, I call I called him Emery, and I thought that character was an yeah. interesting one. I was kind of hung up on that character, though. You know, we mentioned it in our Light of the Jedi coverage at that time. At the end of that book was a line that I felt like kind of spoiled a good chunk of this book. Because when we're introduced to Vanesta and Emery, Emery is her Padawan. And I was like, wait, what? Like, And it gives away, in a sense, part of Emery's journey through this story. Because we know at the beginning of the story, he has another master, Master Douglas. So it kind of loosely does give away something. I wouldn't call it a major spoiler, but it's definitely one that once I finished this book and I looked back, I'm kind of like, we really didn't need that distinction. You didn't have to point out that he was now her Padawan. You could have just called him a Padawan and you wouldn't have given up that little bit of information like that was definitely something that was hot on my mind as I went through the story. Was like, how does this tie in and how much did they give away? It surprisingly wasn't a lot, but I actually enjoyed his character's point of view. I think uh, uh, for me, it was more his story and Vernesta's story and how the two of them kind of like, that's, that's where I'm excited about where this goes from here because I, I saw that in the next of the end of the dark books and stuff, her character kind of ties up with Retha Silas's character and so I'm like, I'm like excited about seeing where Emery goes because he's kind of in the same age frame as, as Wreath even. And he's really close to Vernesta. Like Vernesta is kind of like an odd duck in and of herself because she's so young to be a Padawan. I mean, you go back to uh, Light of the Jedi and you're sitting there with, uh, with Bell and Bell's older than her and he's still a Padawan and he's not even that confident in his own skills and stuff. And while she's not quite confident in being a full knight on her own she's definitely competent in how she progresses and how she handles situations um i really enjoyed watching her character kind of get thrust into the leadership role and how she progresses as it goes and i think one of the things that really intrigued me the most about the story that i was not expecting was how much lore we got i mean this book gives us our first smoking gun about the sith origin I mean, that floored me. Um, like, we flat out get a reference to where the Sith came from. You know, it, it, I've been questioning that for a long time. Were, were they like legends? Were they a species? Were they spin off of the Jedi? What were they? We find out flat out they're a spin off of the Jedi now. And that was really exciting. Like, there was lots of little tiny details like that that were thrown, just literally just tossed at you in the midst of, you know, a character thinking about this, that, or the other thing. Um, I really enjoyed that. I would say one of the things that detracted for me was probably the Nile themselves and the aspect that I felt like they weren't represented in in a broad overall sense of the way they should be. Um, every time we see them, they never have their masks on, which at the beginning of the book makes sense because they're trying to smuggle themselves in as other people. Uh, but later when they're full on just openly acting as Nile, I felt like they should have had their masks on. That was like a key component to part of the fear that the Nile represent because you can't see their faces. They usually have gas masks. They use weapons that terrorize people and stuff like that. And that element was kind of missing from them as their story progressed. I think that was probably the weakest thing for me throughout the story. I generally, I felt like this was a pretty solid little book, keeping in mind that this is like a stepping stone to something bigger. 
You know, I mean, I feel like the first three to five books that we're getting in this era are establishing the norm. You know, they're, they're setting the tone for what's to come and the going back the way that they have with all this is really helping with that. But it also at times can make things a little confusing. Not so much this one, this one really kind of, I I felt like as everything was portraying, I really felt like, okay, this is definitely in universe happening at the same time. Whereas when I was reading other books uh, into the dark, I was kind of like, is this the same locate? Like, you know, they were wrote in a, a way where I was kind of not quite jiving. This one really jived. Well, I, I knew that the disaster was the disaster that was going on in into the uh, light of the Jedi. So that worked out really well. I knew where I was going. I wasn't lost. I wasn't confused. Um, and I generally, I enjoyed the, the interaction of the characters and the way that the characters were dealing with the crisis. Um, a, a majority of the characters suffered personal losses within the first few chapters of the story. You know, the, the, the basic thing is, is they're on their way to get to the station and the Nile are charged with making sure the ship doesn't get there, that everyone dies. Um, and it, they're not successful. You know, there's a small shuttle that escapes. They end up landing on this planet. The planet's pretty cool. It's got its own things going on and stuff. And then the Nile end up chasing them to the planet. Like it's a short story, in a sense, but it works like I, and and it sets things up in a way that I'm excited to see these characters come back and how they go mostly because of the internal dialogue that we got from this book. Yeah. The, um, so a lot of stories that we get are character studies. Uh, we had talked about during the light of the Jedi that we got something that we haven't gotten in a long time. And that was more of an action based, um, event, uh, story, which is based around the, uh, the the great disaster. Well, here we're back to a character study that uses that great disaster as a um, impetus to give us a, a story about these specific characters. And we're not there's not much action in this story whatsoever. You get a little bit of action in the front, but it's more about how do these characters play off of each other. And you were mentioning that you liked Imri's character. I felt that Imri's character was more there to kind of propel um, Renestra towards being a, I don't want to say better Jedi, but more of a leader, like you were saying. She is the youngest Padawan. Like, even going outside of just this timeline, we have Obi-Wan, who was in his 20s when he was still a a Padawan. He was a Padawan for like 10 years or so. And it's kind of what we've assumed is a general length of time that the Padawans are Padawans. is about 10 years uh, from your about 13, 12 years of age to your early 20s. And so you have this girl who is 16 years old, newly acquainted Jedi Knight, um, who really is kind of out of her element compared to everybody else that she probably even knows. Like, how do I become this leader that I'm supposed to be when I have no clue as to what I'm doing compared to everybody else. So I found her story probably the most compelling. And my second favorite person was Avon, um, the 12-year-old little girl who is essentially a genius um, and a a budding scientist all in herself that uh, loves droids and kind of looks things from the scientific perspective. And this book actually really brought me back to our discussion on Heir to the Empire, or Heir to the Jedi. Where in Heir to the Jedi, you had Luke kind of battling within himself between the the Force as a religion sort of thing and your faith 
versus science and what science can give you and how those two things are not always at a to each other but they aren't always like compatible with each other and so kind of kind of going back and forth here and that's what you have here is you have avon on the science side vernestra on the the force and faith side and you have their conversations and what they decide to do within the book kind of as counterpoints to each other and that was probably my favorite part of this book is like watching them kind of go back and forth and as a scientist myself i'm on, i'm on avon's court um that and she's a staros and anybody who reads the comics knows that Sana Staros is a um, big uh, kind of love interest and uh, character in her own right of uh, Dr. Afra, And so she she's popped up also in uh, the Lando and Han book. I'm blanking on the name. Right. I know which one you're talking about, but yeah. Now, what did you think of Honesty? Because Honesty was kind of like the soldier slash hunter slash survivalist. At least he had the skill set. He was also young. And that was something that I thought was cool was like everybody on this trip was teenagers. I mean, and, and that's where Vernestra's character was really pushed forward because of all of them, even though she was probably one of the younger ones, she had the most recognized adult experience by being a Jedi Knight. Uh, whereas Honesty, he had a lot of information and stuff, and he kept a lot of that to himself. It wasn't until about halfway, almost all the way through the story, that he finally started telling the rest of them, like, oh, by the way, like, <laughs> I know some skills here. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's about time. I, I think one of the things I liked about uh, Emery's character was him and honesty. were still kind of dealing with the grief of losing honesty, lost his father and Emery lost his master, master Douglas when the ship was attacked. Um, and this happens pretty early on, which is why I kind of feel like the whole spoiler thing from the, the line about them being stuff was, wasn't that big a deal because you do pretty much find out master Douglas, passes away right in the first three chapters. So it's kind of like, you know, it was, it was definitely a, a push in that direction, but the way that they were both dealing with their grief and the way that culminated by the end of the book was for me, I really got a kick out of that and the way Vernesta handled that whole situation. Um, you know, there, there, there comes a confrontation between Imra and, and Vernestra where Vernestra has to kind of stop him from himself. And the way that that builds up was beautiful because He's in the midst of his own grief and he's caught up in it all, but he starts tapping in on honesty's rage and starts using honesty in a way that was like a battery. Like, like he's like literally taunting him to piss him off so he can then use those feelings to fuel the force. And I'm just like, Ooh, that's some dangerous stuff, dude. You should not be doing that. And the way it culminated in the end with those, with him and, and Vernester coming at each other was, I that was a cool moment for me. I got a kick out of that. Plus, I also was not expecting the fact that when we're reading this book, there are some illustrations in it, um, which I, I thought was great because Vernestra's lightsaber has a special rare ability where she's able to basically Koran horn, initiate a second phase shift, and it becomes a light whip. And... The the way that she goes about like hiding that information from the rest of them because she doesn't want them to know about it. And then when Emery finds it, she's like, you know, well, this was actually used during the Sith. Wars. This is when they start referencing the old battles with the Sith and stuff. And I got really excited because of her weapon and that she would, you know, she looked into some of this lore stuff and that she was taking it to heart and got Emery thinking about those things, which he was in such a dangerous place that... 
it was almost like by seeing Vernestra doing these things, like he was like, oh, it's okay for me to like walk off into the <laughs> gray areas of the forest here. And <laughs> nobody know. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I for me, yeah. that was definitely an aspect of the relationship with Vernesta that I enjoyed was how Emery was handling his grief throughout the process of this book. Have we moved on into spoilers? No, but it probably would be a good time to, since I'm over here almost spoiling everything at this point. (laughs) We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. All right, so you, you had asked about what what I thought about Honesty. Um, I felt he was almost a non-character. Mm. Like, really, what other than driving Emery's rage, which is a not a character trait of him. Like, like he is there for Emory's <laughs> essentially, as opposed to being him, himself his own character. What did he do in this story? Like, he got the fruit, right? Um, that was it, and I that could have been literally anyone could have come up with that. Like, thought it like it, his survival instincts like kicked in, and like all his training allowed him to determine that, and then like they kind of patted him off the on the back after that. It's like you did good, honesty. You saved <laughs> us. You, 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 you that that was great. What you did with the fruit, um, eight hundred pages ago. <laughs> um, we're so proud of you. <laughs> That's true. I mean, everything he did, you probably could have had Staros do. Um, it would have worked just as is as well. J six was interesting because when you see J six on the cover, I think a lot of people thought that she might have been the uh, uh, droid from uh, Clone Wars, where we saw. I can't think of the droid. Professor Huang. Yeah, yeah, the the lightsaber guy. I mean, same model. Yeah. I I I definitely thought that as well. Right. Um. Um. And. And what you're saying about the pictures, the pictures spoiled things for me because I was like, I'm like, oh, there's pictures. I'm going to flip to them, not realizing that they are basically spoiled because they are the pictures that fit into context at that time in the story. Right. And I'm like, oh, there's a like like I knew she had a light whip because it is dead center in the book. But they keep talking. uh, They kind of dance around it for a while um, about that. She has this uh, this modification to her lightsaber should she do it should she not do it should she do it and i'm like um it looks all spinny tangly in the in the picture so i'm assuming she has a light whip Mm -hmm. and uh basically you need to to get it out of light whip stage you you just give the lightsaber a couple of blue pills and that'll straighten it right out (laughs) i i like some of there were some small details that kind of jumped out at me like the jedi on their tabards would have information about where they trained, what temples they've been at and stuff like that. I thought that was kind of cool. Very, very uniform in the sense of their robes weren't just a uniform to recognize, but like almost in scouting, like if you're part of that program, you can look and see the badges that they've earned at different camps. So I was like, oh, that's kind of slick. (laughs) (laughs) You got your destroying things with the force badge. (laughs) Very good. <laughs> right. <laughs> I also like that Vern's lightsaber is purple. Like, I, I'm excited about seeing other colors than just the, the main standards. I wish it wasn't exactly purple. I'd like to have more colors that we haven't seen in the films. It's definitely an aspect of, of you know, 
the force that I was been intrigued by, um, you know, having the dark saber and stuff was something that really excited me. Cause I was always a fan of the dark colored blades and KOTOR and stuff. Uh, when we get the Nile in this, you know, they start out, we've got, was it Quishy and, uh, I can't remember the girl's name, but you know, when it starts out, they're not wearing their masks. It makes sense. They're trying to be, you know, part of the ship's crew. They're hiding in there. They're sabotaging the ship. Their sabotage works out pretty damn well. I mean, I, I, I think they go about the destruction of the ship great. When all that goes down and stuff and Master Douglas, uh, you know, launches the kids with the force to the other side of the, the wall and it drops down and, you know, you're like, oh, they're screwed. Uh, <laughs> like the way that that went down, it happened so fast, but I, I felt the intensity of those scenes, you know, when, when the ship was coming apart. And I, I think for me, that was where honesty worked more because, you know, it was like, you were kind of seeing the panic through his eyes in a sense. Like he had skills, but he definitely wasn't tested. You know, it's like the kid, that dad took out on all the hunting trips and stuff. So he's got the information, but he's never gone on a solo trip before. <laughs> like I definitely got that sense from that kid. Oh, definitely. Yeah, the the Nile in this book. You're right. They could have they could have literally been anybody. Like they didn't need to be the Nile. Um, they could have just. But they wanted to try to. I feel like tie it back to the overall bad guys within a light of the, the light of the Jedi, and like within Light of the Jedi, there are these major marauding groups, and this just felt like weird. It's like, well, we're gonna have this like try to destroy this one ship so that they don't join the Republic. I think that was the entire purpose is to destroy the ambassador, um, honesty's father so that they, they don't join the Republic. Mm -hmm. And the, the whole Nile, the two Niles, essentially, um, it just didn't feel that threatening. Really? Like you have a bunch of kids and you can't take care of a bunch of kids. Like really? Like how how tough are you? <laughs> <laughs> Although I my favorite part of this entire Nile thing is the fact that um, Emery accidentally uh, destroyed their ship with a boulder. Right, that, that was my favorite my favorite thing with the um, him accidentally ripping a boulder out, and then we don't we just assume that it's just gone, and then eventually you find out that the boulder took out their ship, and that that was the the pinnacle of set up and land uh, pull the landing right there. Right. Speaking of things that were gone, there was a great moment when they were talking about Douglas at the beginning, and it's like uh, page seventy two, Douglas, a jab of sorrow lanced through Vernestra as she thought about the Jedi Master. He would return to the cosmic force that connected all things to the galaxy. Vernestra would feel that connection and the echo of Douglas every time she meditated before bed. The cosmic force was calm and helped give Jedi wisdom and guidance. I love the fact that they're bringing forth the cosmic force again and stuff. Like, I, There's definitely some aspects of this as these first few books in this era play out that have been kind of refreshing for me. Um, you know, the, the whole thing about the cosmic and the living force for me, you know, it, it jumps back to legends when the Vong came forth and the idea of, you know, how can you have something that is alive, but doesn't exist in the living force? Well, the answer in new Jedi order was they were connected to the living force. You just couldn't feel them in the living force. They were connected through the cosmic force and it was the living force that they were masked under. And I, I just, the fact that they're bringing those type of things forward at all is just really exciting for me. I mean, the cosmic force was always 
basically the force in general, like they only started calling it the cosmic force around 2000, like is when the term got thrown around. And Lucas, I want to say it was like in a, a, a commentary where he first dropped that on people and they're like, whoa, wait, what? And outside of that, the only other reference I think that we had in canon before that was when Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are talking about being mindful of the living force and staying in the present at the beginning of episode one. Like, I, I just, that's always an aspect of force philosophy that when I see it show up, I'm like, ooh, are they going to, how much more are they going to add to this? It's almost like Yoda's species, you know, like the least amount of information they give you, the more mysterious it is. But every time they give you any kind of little tidbit, even like with the Metachlorians, the more it muddies up the water. And I'm like, ooh, dude, do I even understand this? anymore i gotta reevaluate everything i know <laughs> yeah i definitely like the uh it, it it brings back the thoughts of qui-gon and the uh his conversation with the living force and the cosmic force and everything like that so i definitely appreciated i always appreciate any expansion on the force um i, I love to kind of dig into that stuff I also liked, you know, because talking about honesty, there's a moment where honesty doesn't trust Vernestra. There's a perspective that he gives the readers where you get the impression that Vern might be using the force on him. And he's not quite enjoying that. Like she's using it to help him settle down to make him agreeable. And he starts to question it. And like when that happened, I was like, ooh, could this backfire later? Like they don't really play up on it as much as they could have. But when they first dropped it, I was like, oh, oh, boy, because you know, he's introduced as the character that's grieving and he's got some warrior-esque skills and he doesn't trust the Jedi. I was like, oh, this kid could easily be swayed to the side of the Nile. They didn't go that route, but they were definitely putting things in a way that my brain started to think that they might be going that way. <laughs> yeah, they definitely, like, I, I still, I feel like they were just setting him up to be a tool. <laughs> like a tool basically as in um when you're insulting somebody by calling them a tool <laughs> but also a tool uh, as like being used by the other people as he didn't he he didn't really make an impression on me whatsoever i could see that i could see that uh, let's see. Uh, there's there was some uh, follow up stuff when we had the light whip where uh, Vernestra's like, "Have you read the testimonies of Cervell the Uncanny?" She states that the whip was sometimes used to defend against the Sith lords who would use forbidden forms. Um, Emery's the one. I was on page 129. It was his point of view that we learned that the Jedi founded the Sith. That was the big smoking gun for me. That. That put me at ease on so many levels because I have been wanting to know so much more about the Sith. You know, like we had mentioned during uh, the Light of the Jedi coverage that if Marshawn Rowe was one of Bane's secret Sith, how that would definitely make, you know, the Nile a bigger threat in the grand scheme of things. Because all the way through this story, I'm, I'm constantly reminded of the opening crawl. And again, the Nile just don't really fit the term of a threat to the force itself and the Jedi, maybe to the entire galaxy, kind of, but those two, especially I'm like, I, even this book, I felt like by the time it was done, I didn't get that now into the dark. I feel like that book has finally given us something that definitely qualifies for that, but that's not this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I, I don't want to get into the bad guys on into the dark at all. Right. Right. Um, just in case you don't, just in case you don't know anything, I was spoiled just cause I kind of following up with everything in uh, the high Republic. But if you don't know anything, I don't want to get into them at all. Right. Um, but uh, I think that you are correct is that they, those bad guys combined with the Nile 
Um, and even on their own, I think they have something that we haven't seen in this series to date and that could play a major part in the future and and keep it unseen you know i mean i i'm of the i got spoiled too right before i was literally like three pages away from the name of what that thread is and i was watching a starwars.com video on the high republic don't do it guys don't do it they are dropping things that are just ah i was so ticked off that i couldn't have waited three freaking pages to find that moment <laughs> uh, they they dropped that information um there's a post I think you sent it to me um, uh, that the post that they had done back in October with the villains mm-hmm. of the High Republic, and it was they were mentioned there, and that's how I knew the whole book. I knew what it was. Yep. Uh, another another really cool reference was uh, this team that three hundred years in the past the Republic had sent. Uh, it was like a, a Laroc Shimmerland or something sent a team to catalog planets for colonization. The team never returned, but occasionally messenger droids did make it back with updates. I'm like. That's kind of cool. Like, it has a Katana fleet feel to it. (laughs) The best thing about that is it's not that occasionally updates will, like, this is what happened, but it's consistent updates. So they're still out there, or at least they were still out there continuing. Even though nobody knew where they were, they're still doing their job. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We also find out uh, that Evan has uh, modified J6. Um, and that's a fun little running joke throughout the story because there are times where she's like, okay, maybe I need to dial back on some of this because the droid starts to get a little lippy and a little murderous. (laughs) That's a, like she modified the droid to be essentially more sentient, kind of more aware of himself, less of a servant droid. And that's kind of, he's like, I'm busy right now. I will do what you ask me when I feel like it. Mm-hmm. Oh man, there was uh you remember Ermy's little pet. I thought that was a stupid little moment when we get it. He comes across this little kind of creature on the planet. And you know, talk about tools. There's another one. Like there were there were a lot of definite things that pushed Emery that were definitely tools of the plot. That creature was one of them. It was another thing that ends up getting killed by the Nile that you're just like, well, this kid can't get a break right now. <laughs> Chimri, I think they named it because it like apparently rhymed with Imri. Yes, and I'm like, so I I literally sat there because they called out that the names rhymed, and I'm like, I must be mispronouncing his name if this it looked like Chimri. I'm like Chimri Imri. I'm guessing that's how you pronounce both of these names, um, because that's the only way I can make them rhyme. And uh, yeah, the little uh, and, and he he was killed way too quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, 180. I took a note of that. That we got a glimpse of a Jedi process pilgrimage to Jeddah. I thought that was kind of a cool little reference. Um, you know, th- th- one thing too about honesty. I mean, I-, I get what you're saying about him being a tool. I like though <laughs> his succumbing to the dark feelings of anger and rage. For me, that was a very humanizing aspect of the character, and I think that. That's probably the only thing that I kept coming back to him and Yvonne with was they were definitely the regular people, you know, like when they looked at what the Jedi could do, they didn't really understand all of the Jedi's powers and stuff. So like that was like my connection back to like, these are your normal folks. This is your Han Solo. <laughs> yeah, 100 percent. Yeah, those are your your non Jedi and that's what, essentially like what I was saying with Avon is your scientist versus your faith in the Jedi. Like these are your monks, your your religious figures. Um, how are they comparing up? And so you get the the 
idea of these Jedi from the perspective of these non-Jedi characters. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about is the, the the way the book is kind of presented. And I found it really fascinating is that we have these four main characters. Each chapter goes in a cycle through the characters. And so you are getting their first-person perspective, or I guess third-person limited perspective would be um, more accurate, but you're getting their perspective through each chapter. So it would be like Vernestra, and then we'd switch chapters to Avron, and then the next chapter would be Imri, and kind of get like a baton handoff between each of these characters. But you also get their feelings on the issues at hand. And so you can kind of see how does honesty feel about the Jedi. And you you know, as opposed to him saying it, you kind of know his internal feelings of things. And why does Imri feel like he's a complete failure to the Jedi, and why is he getting so upset about things? And Vernestra, although a super young Jedi Knight, feels super in um, inconsequential to everything. She doesn't feel like she stands up to where she should be uh, within this this hierarchy. And so her gaining more confidence in her own abilities as time goes on. And the whole light whip thing was super interesting because here you have a Jedi Knight in front of a Padawan and she doesn't want to show the Padawan her light whip because she's afraid that she went to the dark side to create the light whip. And so you kind of have like, not jealousy, but kind of like hiding what she had done because she's ashamed of it regardless of the purpose of it or how it came to be and how that kind of tied in with her confidence of being a Jedi, being this apparently super powerful Jedi and um, how she needs to kind of embrace what she is as opposed to hiding what she is. Right. I, I, I think that that is going to play up a lot more in future books. Like, the whole confrontation there at the end of the book where she kind of brings him back into the fold or at least as best you can with what's going on with uh, Emery. It was a great moment, though. Um, it was in Chapter 21. Uh, it's uh, just as Emery drew his lightsaber, Vernestra appeared before him, her green skin bright against the dark coloring of the plants around her. Whiffs of hair had come loose from the tie that held it back, and she stood in the ready position with her bright purple lightsaber. Emery, stop. You're not going to kill those pirates. That's where you're wrong. I'm going to kill them. And if you don't let me pass, I'll kill you first. The words were coming from Emery's mouth, sounded like someone else's. He didn't really want to kill Vern, did he? Guilt swept over him. Vernestra had only been kind to him, but there was nothing for him without his master to guide him. He owed it to Douglas to punish the Nile for their crimes. So Imri decided he would stand up against Vernestra. He would kill her if she did not let him take care of that despicable human woman and that awful Aquilish man. They did not deserve to live, and he would make certain they did not. Move, Vern. I have to do this for Douglas. This is the last thing he would have ever wanted. Move or be move, Imri said. Vernester's expression hardened. Well then, Padawan, let's see what you've got. And I was like, oh, oh, dude, Vernester's a little badass. <laughs> like in that moment, I'm like, whoa, buddy. <laughs> That's what my favorite thing about that was. It's like when like <laughs> little kids get really, really upset and they try to take on the adult. It's like... You were not going to win this competition. <laughs> I don't care how hard you try. Right. I'm three oh, times man. bigger that, than I you. think <laughs> that there at the end, when it finally comes to that point where 
Emery and honesty kind of push the girls into the into the moment where they have to go after the boys. Like in a sense, the boys are the reason why it all comes to a head. <laughs> and, and when they get there, the J six starts busting out all these arms with guns. Oh, I'm yeah, like, 100%. holy crap! And Avon's like, yeah, my mom is really, really overprotective. <laughs> Well, they they called it out ahead of time that that wasn't a nanny droid. It was a um, like uh, bodyguard droid, and so uh-huh. we never really saw the bodyguard part of that until the end of the story. So it was kind of like a seed planted early on that did come to fruition at the end. Yeah, J six like then it's a good thing I'm not an ordinary droid. Her chest pops open, a bunch of arms with blasters pop out, a cannon comes up over her back. I'm like, holy crap! Like, this droid is locked, loaded, and ready to go. <laughs> I did, I, I think J6 overall was, a, like, a really good character, um, despite uh, being a droid. Um, I guess droids are their own characters in Star Wars. So, regardless of her being a droid, I think she turned out to be a really good character and kind of, like, throughout the, the story kind of was evolving in her own right because the the programming kind of was taking more and more hold on on her right Vern thinks it's a little weird and there was a great moment between uh Yvonne where Yvonne replies weird or wonderful Vern this is one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen droids can reprogram themselves if given the opportunity that means something yeah that means something and that could also be scary as all get out like (laughs) That's a. I've seen the Terminator. Right, like there's a part of me that's keep. I keep waiting for that story. You remember, like back in Legends, where they were always talking about like the droids were a threat, and you know, yeah, the Clone Wars kind of shows that. But I've always felt like the best thing that really showed us that was the uh, the tales of the bounty hunters, where we see IG eighty eight take over the Death Star and a whole bunch of droids. Yeah. I'm like, that is a scary premise. <laughs> Well, you also have the occasional drops. I don't know if it's in canon as well, but it's I, I believe I've read it recently in the canon books of the droid revolution from long ago. Like, like it, it just tidbits. It's just mentioned like uh, as little like one-off two-word sentences like, oh, yeah, the droid revolution. That was long ago, though, and, and things like that. So it's like uh, clearly something had happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's also a moment in page 202 where Vern's pleading with Imra. She goes, you need to let go, Imra. This isn't you. This is the dark side reaching for you. This need for revenge and all this anger, that's the path to the dark side. Now, that reminded me a lot of the dark having its own will. And I love that back in the New Jedi Order, Verger really explored with the idea of the force, the light, the dark side. We had the living and the cosmic force, how it's all one. And... She brought up the whole phrase with that the, there was no dark side, and that screwed with Jason Solo's mind so hard for such a while. And then finally, Jason realized, you know, there was a dark side of the force, even though it might not have started out that way. And I've noticed that, like, you know, the planet that they are on on this, I would definitely say it's it's more of a, a dark aspect of nature. Um, the rain on the planet is acidic. Uh, All the vegetation on the planet, when it's raining, it all dies. And then when it stops raining, the plant life kind of resurges and comes back. And I I liked seeing how that played out and stuff. And going back to this era when the Jedi are at the height of their power, you know, there are no Sith out there and stuff. uh, You know, things that we've always kind of taken for granted as the norm in Star Wars for the Jedi are not in this time frame. Um, One case in point from Into the Darkness 
uh, is there's a, a moment where one of the characters was talking about a class at the academy being lightsaber dueling and how it was an art form that really had no purpose for the Jedi because the odds of the Jedi combating someone else with a lightsaber were zero. The only time that would happen would be in that class. And so, like, you know, going back to this era where those things are, are new and stuff and seeing things from a new perspective is really, really intriguing for me. Like, I really get a kick out of that. Even though we're only 200 years in the past, they're using that as, like, almost a springboard for further back events, which, you know, when we were doing our coverage for uh, Tales of the Jedi and we were talking about how when that one launched off, they were doing the same thing where they were talking about the Empress Tita system and they were giving us all that you know, information and stuff in the narrative that you would just think had happened in other books, but it was only just tossed out in the narrative of one story. They're doing a lot of that right now too. And I love the way that it's just building up the potential for if they were to decide to jump back even farther in the past, you've now got time frames and events and things like that, that we now can put on our timeline and start to solidify these eras. Like, I think that that is one of the coolest things about exploring the far flung reaches of the timeline of star Wars canon. Yeah. That's actually probably one of my favorite things is one of the things I loved in legends was the, um, like the star forge and the center point station and all those like the Rakatan technology, things that happened long ago that we didn't learn about, but eventually we did learn about like a lot of it. And even then they, they pushed boundaries even further back. And so you keep, you can keep going backwards by finding out these new things. And they are doing that a lot here. I think um, into the dark does it a lot more than a test of courage, but test of courage also gives you some of these background events that because to the characters, you are in the time. Mm-hmm. Like the characters don't know what happens in 200 years. Uh, so all they know is what is their past and to their past is their past. And so uh, the, the author set it up really well, giving us these mysterious species or these mysterious like um, things that kind of have happened back uh, to these, to the galaxy as a whole. And so that I love that, and I love like finding out more and more information because you'll never know everything, and the authors purposely seed in these other things to give them branching off points should they ever want to do it. Mm-hmm. I, another one I liked was we got another uh, disposition drop on two twelve. Avon or not Avon uh, actually, it's Fernestra starts using the Force to interrogate the Nile, and she gets a lot more details out of the Nile than any other Jedi right now. Um, you know, she goes, you know, you know, who are you guys? What are the nil exactly? Are you just pirates? And of course she goes, we're more powerful than that. Pirates wish they could do what we do. The Nile go where they want, do what they want and take whatever they want. We are many and we are strong and only the strongest shall survive as it is always meant to be. So I like, like I was pretty excited about that. I'm like, Hey, you know, we're finally getting some information about what the Nile are after here. Plus you get the whole plot of this about, you know, they're trying to keep the outer rim wild. They do not want the Republic coming in and setting up laws. They like operating under and between the lines of justice and the laws of, you know, society. Um, And that's definitely an aspect that, has always been fun about these older eras. It's like you go back, the farther back in time you go, the smaller the known galaxy gets. And like for us, the readers, like we know about the stuff that these guys don't know about on the outer rim and stuff, because we've been reading about it for a long time. But for them, like this is all, all 
you know, the frontier. Like, I love the way that they're playing that up and the way that the Nile are just like, now nah, we've got claim to this and you can't come in. And like the whole point of these first couple books is to really just set up the idea that, you know, yeah, the Nile are a threat. Um, but as the books are building it, I don't think like we've really seen how big a threat the Nile really can be. No, and we know that there are not a threat 200 years in the future, and the Republic <laughs> is in the Outer Rim. Right. And so whatever happens, they lose, and the Republic wins. Right, yeah. Well, and that was the thing I was thinking about, the, the beacons, too. You know, I was like, when they started introducing them, I'm like, immediately, I'm like, well, we know that all the beacons are not going to be there because we haven't seen any. And then I'm like, stop, and I think about it more, and I'm like, well, I mean, you know, yeah, but no, you could easily... If they decide to make the beacons be successful, I mean, there's two routes you go with the beacon, right? The beacon either fails and there was only one ever built or it was successful and they built a few of them and then they all collapse and either they all get wiped out or you could have one or two that exist somewhere on the far flung outer edges that people just forgot about that somebody comes across later and comes and stumbles across, um, which I think is what's happening with uh, Afro right now, right? That's what it seems like, um, and with the main Star Wars line, it's uh, named Operation Starlight, but from what I can tell, it doesn't really have much to do with Starlight Beacon, even though it's mm. written by Charles Sewell, who wrote Light of the Jedi, so I I don't know if we'll interact with it, but they're apparently aware of the beacon, um, and mm. we have spaces, essentially, unlimited. You can have these space stations, which were used for a time being, and then once they stop becoming used, just leave them be and nobody ever comes across them again like similar to the maxine station in into the dark um we have actually seen that again in another comic series but we didn't know about it at the time and so it's like these things can come back they don't need to be destroyed as long as they're not actively being used right one thing i think after I'm almost done with Into the Dark, but one thing that that book made me realize that this book and Light of the Jedi didn't really impress upon me was the design of the Nile ships, right? Like, I, I in, yes. by this point, I had not got the sense that the Nile ships were a collection of ships that operated as one big ship. When they talk about the storm and they talk about the cloud and they talk about those things, I never got the sense that it was more than just the minor operations of certain groups. Whereas the third book, I, I don't even really know if it's the third book per se, but into the dark kind of makes it seem where the ships can all dock together and travel like one big ship and then disengage into smaller ships. And I did not ever really get that out of into the, or light of the Jedi, but test of courage wasn't enough nil to really even go there at all so like i felt we like the nil in this even get any ships of the nile no in this book no and, and the nile in, in this book like they felt so different than how the nile were presented in either of the other two books that i feel like there's still a lot about the nile that's not quite understood and there's times where i'm reading this and even into the dark where i was like is it me that's not understanding the Nile or was there some aspects of how they were designing the Nile that each writer just kind of had a little bit different interpretation on? <laughs> so I'm still like, as these books are coming out and as I'm reading more information about the Nile, I'm still processing that. And I'm like, I didn't realize at this point that that was how their ships operated, which, which becomes very clear in into dark. But 
yeah, it's definitely one of those things where I'm like, each book has given me a new insight into how the organization of the Nile works that I'm still quite putting it together like i get a little more information i'm like yeah okay maybe they are more of a threat than i've given them because in that first book you know into the light i'm just like oh these guys aren't that big a threat like they're just pirates glorified pirates and now i'm like i I don't know i think that they are less a cohesive whole um then we were led to believe because if you have this group acting on kind of its own and light of the jedi you kind of got that a lot where the different um parts of the the group can kind of do their own things and so they aren't exactly a um doing all the same things at the same time or even acting in concert with each other and so I think I, by the end of The Light of the Jedi, which we are not at that point in the timeline with these books, uh, they the, the, the Nile become a different organization from what they are before the end of The Light of the Jedi, essentially during these books. Yeah, and that definitely makes sense. I, I could definitely get behind that. I I think we're going to see Yvonne with Emery's lightsaber eventually. We see her pick up the broken pieces uh, no one notices that she has it. She does intend to fix it. And she does come back in a later book. So I'm like, hmm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking she's going to find out some stuff about Jedi's lightsabers and how they work, or she'll be welding one in a future book. That's uh, my prediction off of that. <laughs> I could definitely, they definitely kind of teased that through the whole book. She was eyeing the lightsabers and the, she really wanted to learn about the crystals. And you know where I think this goes hmm. is it kept talking about the crystals. Where do we know the crystals end up? Mm-hmm. In the Death Star. Mm-hmm. And all with the catalyst. So I'm thinking that her research, she's getting, granted, she's only 12 years old. So right. you think 100 year lifespan of people in this galaxy doesn't seem out of the ordinary. You're dealing with 100 years then before the movies and 100 years before Catalyst Ooh. essentially starts with Galen Erso. She could be that first step along the lines of developing yep. the Death Star laser plans through these crystals. And it's kind of that's where I was getting that she goes, especially if she is coming back. I didn't know she was coming back, but if she is coming back, that she could totally be on this trajectory. Oh yeah, no, that would work. Um, as we tied things in, we get to what page 222 Skeeter ends up showing up. Um, the way I'm understanding it, you've been reading more of the comics. So correct me if I'm wrong. Skeeter in the comics is on a mission and then their mission in the comic ends. And on their way to the starlight beacons, dedication ceremony, they pick up our group of Jedi on the planet and bring them to the station. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so, yeah, Skier, Skier was in Light of the Jedi where he loses his arm. Yep. Um, and then he is in the um, the comic series, the, the Marvel High, the High Republic comic series, mm-hmm. um, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's in that series, and then it's really just the first issue of that series. It's the only one we've gotten. Um which leads into the dedication ceremony, but kind of they stop on here on the way to get the, 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 to the dedication ceremony. I assume just because 
they got the signal and they're on the way. Right. And this is where, for me, I was able to really, okay, this is where this lines up. Because at 222, Skier, uh, Skier is telling Vernestra that she should take Imri on as a Padawan. So even here at the end, they're both on the station as two companions. Whereas Light of the Jedi, they didn't, like I said, they didn't need to mention that he was her Padawan. But since they did, we do learn that that literally... This scene literally takes place right before the other scene. Like, oh, okay. He had literally just become her Padawan. Like, they really yeah. did not need to put that in there. But since they did, um, he also says something profound to her. He goes, the force is not so simple and neither are the emotions of living creatures. Most Jedi have felt the temptation of the dark side. It is only natural. But we resist it. It is deliberate. It is a deliberate path to the dark, not a series of bad days. Being a Jedi about choosing the light over and over again. And I had to stop and wonder, you know, if applied to Anakin, one could say a series of bad days is exactly what pushed him over the edge. <laughs> and that's not this not a new um, kind of idea is that you constantly have to make the the right choice. Like every day you are constantly trying to do the good thing. Um, and so it's, it's, it's been applied to the Jedi before is that you constantly have to choose to be a good person. Essentially. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that messed with me often with the timeline of events was the way that the female Nile, uh, point of view care. I think it was care. Was her name? Um, the way she kept thinking about Kasav. Yes. Was clear that she, as the story progressed, that most of her point of view was from before Kasav went down, which worked. But then we get to the point in an epilogue where we see, oh no, uh, uh, Kara was uh, the, the lady that was in the epilogue. Kara Zhu was a Nile. She was a leader of a storm. She had lost seven strikes in near seven days. She needs to grow her storm, recruit. And she decides to raid Dallas schools for children to make Kasav and the other Tempest runners proud in the end. And that was where I was like, okay, is that a slight continuity error? Because at this point, we know at the end of uh, Light of the Jedi that the Nile learn of Kasav's ruin when Roe rises to power, that the Nile go into hiding. But I, I, this is where I, th- I think it's, it's not an error. I just think it's missing info and it's out of context because the fact that the dedication ceremony hasn't really happened yet just means that this entire story is set before that chapter 43 of Light of the Jedi, at least. So like, I, was, I was thinking about that, though, and it was definitely, it made me like look at it like, does this quite line up with what's going on in the Nile's timeline versus the events that's going on with the Republic? And like, they're definitely loose here, but I feel like one could make an argument that it's an error. And I think that you could just as equally make an argument that no, it's just missing context. <laughs> no, actually they do reference because I can, I'm trying to find it now, but they specifically stated that she tried to get in contact with Kasav. Um, uh, oh, here it goes. It says, she sent a large measure of her forces to Kasav as he had requested, which was that that uh, the battle, right? And she had heard nothing from them either, and so she had sent them to the battle, and then she's heard nothing since, and so she doesn't know that they're destroyed yet. So she's still working towards whatever to build up her strength for him, but she is not aware that it has been after that event. See, and what I can't remember, I, I'll have to pull out Light of the Jedi, is 
I felt like that when Roe had his moment where he explained all the Nile, what had happened, I felt like that had happened before the actual ceremony. And that's where I was like, is this, you know, like, is, is this lining up? I couldn't figure out if that actually lined up or not. Um, but that's where I wanted to lean on you because I knew you'd be paying attention to those things a lot more than I was because I definitely felt confused when I went into, into dark with a lot of the ways things were being presented. I'm like, was this lining up? Like, <laughs> Yeah. I believe that Rose speech is almost contemporaneous with the dedication of starlight beacon. Like I think they are really close in time with each other, if not at the same time, because like I said, this, this book takes place on their way to the dedication of starlight beacon. And if I remember Light of the Jedi, they never changed the dedication of starlight beacon, the date of it, uh, regardless of the, the great hyperspace disaster. They basically just tried to work towards getting that, the dedication to not change the date. And so that was still a few weeks away at the beginning of the book where here they are on their way to the dedication. So we're within like a week or two of the dedication um, so by the end of the book, you are literally going to the dedication. And so I think you are like, like I think the battle with Kasav is really close to the dedication and that the, 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 the speech probably overlaps if not is really close to each other. Okay. Yeah. Cause when I was looking at into or light of the Jedi, the speech happens in chapter 43, Right, which is actually before chapter 44, which was actually at the Starlight Beacon. So I was thinking in my mind, like maybe chapter 43 should have been after the the thing, because that's where I, w- I was definitely feeling like there was a line up there. But again, I just think it's, it's just out of context and not enough information is given. I think that what's there is legitimate, but I think if you miss just even one detail, like I think I did, I think you become confused. And you're like, wait, is something not lining up here? <laughs> they... Light of the Jedi plays with time a lot. Um, I don't remember. There was a, a previous Legends book. I, I don't remember which one, but that like that the timelines don't aren't at the same pace essentially. And the same thing's happening with Light of the Jedi that we didn't go over much, but they had mentioned it on um, one of the, the Star Wars uh, official Star Wars shows, where the um, the group that was trying to capture the Nile group that was capturing that family yeah. and they needed to be tracked down. Yeah. They, that storyline moves at a different time speed than the rest of the story that was going, that was going on. So they, that story that where they're trying to track them down doesn't take like the weeks that everything else is happening at it. That's it, like, it, it, they basically just stretched it out so they can kind of place it within the story. And so right. one hour the, made to seem like it's a lot longer. Yeah, and so it's like that them playing with time in light of the Jedi kind of throws off how you perceive the other books and things. Mm. Well, I I will say I enjoyed this story quite a bit for it being more of a character-led story. Being the second, and I I say that loosely because when I asked when this book came out, I was like, is there a specific order I should be reading this in? And and no, you don't really have to. You can read it in any order. They're all designed in that way. Uh, I, I felt like, you know, this one does a pretty dang good job with the characters. I'm really excited to see where these characters go next. Um, as for the, the era itself, I don't think this book did a lot for building the era up. Um, 
but it didn't have to. I think Light of the Jedi did enough to set everything in motion that now we could just start building up on the characters and going from there. And, you know, you had mentioned when we were talking about these characters tying into other books that other authors are going to get to write these characters. And that, I think, is also going to be something exciting because, like, while I love when one author, you know, explores and builds up characters like Timothy Zahn did with Mara Jade, I absolutely love when Timothy Zahn let other people use Mara Jade and what they did with that character. So I, I'm, I'm just super excited to see these characters continue to grow and which ones are going to be more mainstay. Cause it's early enough that half of these characters could be dead in three more books time for all we know. I mean, there's a lot of Jedi that didn't make it through, uh, in a uh, light of the Jedi. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, I'm just looking up Vernestra Rowe right now, and she's listed as being in Race to Crash Point Tower, which is a Daniel Jose older book, um, and Out of the Shadows, which is uh, okay. That that would make sense because it's a Justine Ireland book, but it seems to that would play into the Into the Dark, Out of the Shadows sort of thing, as opposed the counterpoint to uh, Claudia Gray's book. And Staros um, is on that cover, right? Yes, uh, yes, she's she's, and then you have Imri and um, uh, Vernestra kind of in the background behind her, but she looks much older in the cover of that book, like she does not look twelve. Right, right, and Wreath uh, is in this one, which I thought was cool that they're you know branching them together. Yeah, and so I definitely i I liked this book. I liked this book actually better than Light of the Jedi, just because of the story felt more. Um, contained within itself light of the jedi's task was to set up an entire um a, a entire time frame a universe essentially with new characters and everything and it felt like a lot thrown at you uh charles soul did a very good job of doing it but mm-hmm. i liked this story better since it is more contained it is a quote middle grade book and so it's written a little um not dumber but easier to read you're not dealing with like the hard words and so you can get through it easier it's easier to understand what exactly is going on a lot of things are laid out a little better um than when you have books written for adults sometimes they are a little hazy on exactly what's going on where the middle grade you need to spell it out so everybody knows what's going on there's no questioning what happens right and um that can be a benefit to a lot of stories. Like you don't have the, oh, pulling up the legends, the Darth Bane um, question where I think it was it in the third book where we weren't ever sure if Darth Bane um, actually inhabited his apprentice um, until the author, um, oh, name's slipping my mind, uh, until the author had to come up in his own blog and say, no, that didn't actually happen because oh. it wasn't ever like clearly laid out. Yeah, Drew Kropisky? Yeah, Kropisky. yeah. Name and I'll so never that's... be able to pronounce until I need to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so like it, it, things like that, like you have a very well laid out story, has likable characters for the most part. Um, yes, they're on the younger side. It is a middle grade book, but it doesn't stop you from enjoying the book. I enjoyed the book. Um but again, I like a lot of books. I, I tend to take the books for what they are. Mm-hmm. And I took this as a middle grade book full of kids. And that's if you take that as it is, it's an enjoyable book. One thing I'm excited about about this era, unlike the other eras, a lot of the new Star Wars canon books come out with new stories, great new characters. And for the most part, I would say 95% of those new characters in those new stories are never referenced again. 
they're all kind of self-contained and, you know, you never see these characters beyond that one book, maybe one or two do that 5%. Uh, but I feel like this is going to be different. I feel like the characters that are in this book are all going to be characters that we're going to see come back. Uh, they're all going to have bigger roles in what's going on. And in that regard, you know, we've said it before, I really feel like this series does have a lot of strong connections to how the New Jedi Order series was put forward. Um, and I'm, I'm seeing that in so many aspects of what we're doing that it definitely leaves me with hope that we're going to see these characters be core characters of the story of the High Republic. Um, they're all young, which is perfect for them to grow through this adventure, uh, kind of setting them up to be the solo uh, kids in a sense, as they were the young group growing into age during the New Jedi Order. That's what we're going to watch with the High Republic here with these type of kids. And I think that that is really cool. Um, like you said, with Light of the Jedi, Light of the Jedi was basically the Force Awakens. You know, I mean, it was trying to do so much at one time providing information, but at the same time, it's also Rise of Skywalker, where it's like trying to do all this at once. <laughs> and you kind of can't like there's always so much you can do with a beginning story. And so now we're going to do those next steps where we're going to introduce more characters or characters that were mentioned in that other one. And we're going to flesh them out. And I really feel like for Vernester's character, we fleshed her out a lot. Um, Emery's character. I feel like we've gotten a good touch tone onto where he's at, which will make him a more intriguing character going forward. Because even though he did slip to the dark side, he doesn't get, really chastised for it too bad. There's not, you know, not a uh, punishment per se. And I'm looking oh, forward. Oh, we've all done it. We've all touched the dark side. Right. Get over yourself. Right. We're all <laughs> sinners here. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where his internal monologue goes with things as he goes forward, because he's definitely a kid that can succumb to his emotions quickly. Now the question is, is, is he going to be more like, you know, uh, Jaina Solo or Jason Solo? Is he going to be hard to learn the lesson like Jason was, where we're just going over and over and over again? Like, dude, stop picking the dark side, you jackass. <laughs> 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 or is this going to be something like Zek, where he recognizes that he has a penchant for the dark side and he is going to strive to work to be a better Jedi because of it? Um, so I I'm looking forward to Emery, kind of like Palpatine looking at Anakin Skywalker. I'll watch your career with great interest. Um, how would we rate it? Jim, I'm going to kick that over to you before I tell my rating. Uh, I gave it, so while I gave Light of the Jedi a 7 out of 10, uh, I like I said, I liked this one a little better. And so I, I, just a smidge better. Um, I feel like Light of the Jedi had more of an impact. And so it being more of an impact, but less as strong a story, and less strong characters um, for Light of the Jedi kind of averaged out to seven. This one didn't have as much as a major of an impact and it had did have issues like a couple of the characters I felt were completely not. Well, maybe not completely pointless, but generally pointless um, and didn't really contribute to the story, the group as a whole. I gave this a the seven and a half out of uh, ten because um, I'm only limited to half points where normally I would go down to probably hundredths of points because that's just the way I work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Cause I was actually, I was, I was leaning between eight and seven and a half. And I myself was leaning towards seven and a half. Um, you know, it's a solid book for me. I think the, the global events are probably why I wouldn't have given it as a higher rating. 
but it, it's a solid book. I, I'm actually, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, the Disney Lucasfilm Press books, the books that are supposedly young adult readers, these kids' books, are pretty damn grown up. Um, I, I don't really, I like maybe like what you said about, you know, they explain things a little bit better or make it a little more universally easier to understand. And I think that works for it. I think that works for it in a way that works for me because I never get confused in these books like I do the other books. Um, you know, I, I had some moments with this one where I was trying to time things up, but I think a, a majority of those questions came from how does this book that seems pretty solid line up with the other book that some things are still nebulous. Um, and the nebulous stuff is coming from the Delray side of things. You know, I mean, there's definitely that penchant for not wanting to, on the publishing end, whether it be Disney Lucasfilm or Delray, to tie in dates. And I still feel like that's probably something that is an initiative from the story group or somewhere on Lucasfilm because I don't understand why you wouldn't want to tie these things in to stop yourself from tripping later. <laughs> that's something that always ends up happening. And yet, for some reason, they're like, oh, we've... Never had a history of things not lining up when we've had the dates here. <laughs> like, yeah, why do they think a, I, it's going to be different now? <laughs> I don't know. They definitely think that by locking down the dates, they're locked into those dates, um, which I don't see as a bad thing because like, they, then you know exactly what happens when. Like, where do you want this story to take place? Well, this is when this happens. This is when this happens. So as long as you abide by those restrictions, um, that it, it'll work. And I don't think they, they're like, well, we don't want to restrict the authors. Like, no, you need to restrict the authors that work in concert with every other story that's out there. And yeah, I, like you were saying about the being a easier to read. Like I said, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Having a story may be easier to read. You're all you're trying to get across is that this is a story that you want to tell. These authors are not James Joyce. And as someone personally who hates James Joyce, this is a good thing. <laughs> like, you don't need to make a nonsensical book to be entertaining. These are supposed to be fun reads. This is not homework assignments. These are, like, meant to be fun. So the easier that they are to understand what you're trying to write, I think the better it is. Right. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk about the cover for a second here. Uh, you know, it's cartoony. I'll forgive it for that because I like cartoons as well. I felt like this cover really worked, though, because, I mean, you know, you never judge a book by a cover. But if you were to judge a book by a cover, I feel like this cover provides a majority of what you need from this book. You get the location of the planet you're on. You get the storms in the background presented by the lightning coming down. You don't see the rains, per se, but that's OK because you don't need it. You, you, thunder, lightning usually has rain involved. Uh, we get our main characters. We get to see who they all are. Everyone's represented except for the one character that we didn't actually talk about, which would have been Avon's mouse droid. Um, but yeah, like uh, aside from the nil not being there, we even get the cliff that they knocked the boulder down in the background. Like I, I think that the cover works. Yeah, it's in the same illustration style as the, uh, the three pictures that are, I guess, the three splash pages, so the two-page two pictures that are presented throughout the book as well, as uh, so illustrations by Peter Antonson. And it, you're right, it gives a perfect, this is kind of what you're going into. Yes, it's a younger reader. The pictures are, looks as if it's a younger 
design like the this is a more childish version they are not the grown-up pictures they fully fleshed out um uh, shadows and everything it's more of a cartoony style and so you're you're getting a more of a younger type story to kind of get you built into the story um the size of the book threw me off completely when i first got it though like like when i pick up the book it is a slightly larger than the my hand outstretched fingers outstretched which is a lot smaller than almost every book that we get um however Putting it up on my shelf, uh, I like to match same size books, and this is not the only time we've gotten this size book. Uh, Guardian of the Wills and um, the the Mighty Chewbacca and the Forest of Fear both came in the exact same size <laughs> with uh, the hardcover books, and so it's not unique, but it just kind of is a much smaller, physically smaller book than I was expecting, but still took me a while to read, like even at two hundred pages. Um, it's not a, a, a like a super quick to get through. You know, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because I too like the size of this uh, book, which is a good time to talk about the fact that we have just found out that uh, Delray has announced that their mass media paperback that are already a little shorter than the original mass media's and longer are switching to the premium trade paperback format. Um, you know, previous episodes beyond the film way in the past, I've always talked about my bookshelf. You know, the, the bookshelf uh, for Legends was a paperback style one. When they went to those premium styles before, here I've got all these books that fit on one size shelf. And then the only way I can have those books in my timeline, I have to have them turned sideways. I absolutely loathe when a publisher <laughs> switches their book style in the middle of while they're doing their books. Like I don't mind this book being smaller than the rest. I actually like this one. I kind of wish more of the books were this size. Um, but that is definitely something that I was, uh, when I saw that, I was like, why are they constantly changing these things? Like, it makes no sense. Now you could take this cover and in maybe five years time, put a cover on it more like say light of the Jedi. One that looks more like, more realistic animation or drawing of these characters and re put it out. And I bet you, you could probably fool some adults into buying it that passed on it because of the cover the first time. Um, and I think that that again is a testament to the look of the book and the story inside that if you just, you know, a cartoon character makes you think, Oh, this is for kids. But if you put one on like light of the Jedi, I think that that perception would just disappear. People wouldn't realize that this is a young adult book at all. Yeah, I can probably, I agree with that. And you're right, the like Star Wars publishing, the book sizes, all over the map. Like literally, like if you collect the books, you own every size of book ever printed. <laughs> right. <laughs> what sucks too is like when you get like so far into it and then they change to a format that just doesn't fit and you're like, Well, I've got fifteen of the like uh, for me the the prime example are the uh the essential guides, right? Those are all the same size oh, yeah. and stuff. And then they start putting out role-playing game books that were of a different size. And the role-playing game books were the same size as all the essential guides. So I can have all those together, but now the new ones like Starships of the Galaxy or Jedi Academy Training Manual or Scum and Villainy won't fit with any of my other ones. So they're sitting off three books by themselves like they're not part of the same set. Damn it! Drives me absolutely up a wall. <laughs> I have a stack here of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven books that I need to put into my timeline. Not one of them is the same size as the others. Oh, dang. <laughs> like, they're all completely different books. Oh, uh, well, speaking of things that don't stack up, how is this era uh, stacking up you for you so far? You can, but you can stack the books up. 
that they're they're stacked right next to me. <laughs> All right, bad pun transition. But the question stands, Jim. How would this era? How is this era stacking up for you so far? Uh, and and with that, let's include into the dark because as the moment we're recording this, there's three stories that are out right now. Well, four if you're counting the comics. How would you rate this era? Five, so far? if you count the comics. There's two separate comics. Oh, that's ones. right. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, Adventures has one too, right? Yeah, and that's by uh, Daniel Jose Older. Um, and it is like if you're not reading Star Wars Adventures because it's the Kitty comics, uh, which I can't fault you for. Um, the uh, High Republic IDW series Star Wars Adventures or High Republic Adventures, whatever they're calling it, not Kitty. It's mm. um. Like completely, like I, if that was a Marvel series, I wouldn't have been able to tell. That's why I couldn't keep straight which one was Marvel and which one was not because it's uh, they are very similar in tone. Well, that's a good thing though because I, I think that there, I probably myself included, are fans out there that just will assume that one is a little over animated and a little more kitty friendly and would probably avoid that one. I have been treating the Adventures comics a lot like the uh, Clone Wars little digests that they put out uh, during Dark Horse's times. You know, something I planned on getting, but I would get it last kind of thing. Um, and hearing and that makes me feel like, so. ooh, that's a bad idea. I definitely need to reassess my outlook on the adventures when it comes to the High Republic era. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting because, like, um, this is completely separate uh, um, diversion. But the Marvel High Republic is written by Kevin Scott. Kevin Scott wrote most of, if not a majority, of the Star Wars Adventures line. So he was on IDW, and now he's writing for Marvel. And Daniel Jose Older um, wrote Last Shot. That was the book I was referencing earlier where uh, Sana Staros comes in. Uh, he wrote Last Shot. And so he is also writing the IDW comic series. So he's not um, disfamiliar with writing adult novels. And so that that that, that one actually, um, I really enjoyed the IDW, that comic. Um, the only one that's come out so far is only one there. And it definitely is not a kitty kid friendly like layout because it took me a while just to kind of understand what was going on because the way they have the color set up, it's a beautiful comic, but it makes it hard to kind of track the progress unless you kind of go back over it once you kind of get to the end of the comic and you're like, oh, okay, I know what's going on now. Um, and so it's definitely not the that same type of style. But overall, for the High Republic, I'm enjoying this series so far. I'm like this is the first time I've been caught up on a series at all. I've read everything that they put out so far. I finished uh, into the dark uh, a couple days ago um, as of we're, as of recording now. And I think everything put together is really making a strong foundation because they all overlap each other. They're all during the same time frame. And so you have this strong base to build the high Republic's future stories off of. And I'm not terribly surprised that they released all these books very similar time frame. Because if you look at the um, before COVID hit at all, the um, release announcement for the High Republic basically had all five of these series pictured on the cover of the release announcement. So they were these were going to be the five early releases, if not released on the same day, released really close to each other, similar to what they were now just supposed to be in August. Yeah, I'm enjoying them. I'm in the same boat. Um, 
I'm interested to see where we go. I like the fact that, like I said, we can go backwards with references to things that have happened in the past and flesh out the story both directions in that regard. Um, man, for me, it just it, it just gets intriguing because, like, I haven't read the comics, so I'm still I've got to get to that point. But I keep going back and forth on that whole threat to the galaxy. Whereas Into the Dark, I feel like we've gotten we we probably gotten there, and without giving away anything, the way that certain elements play into that threat makes me think of in our Light of the Jedi episode where I was pondering that maybe Marshawn Rowe is one of Bane's rule of two Sith. If that's still the case, which I still pray and hope, I think that that could play into the threat of Into the Dark. <laughs> because there... I can see that. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, ooh. Like, I really, I really hope Marshawn Rowe ends up having more it's... than just a Nile connection. <laughs> All right, watching the High Republic show, it's Markeon. Oh, Markeon. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it, don't worry. I just realized that myself. Um, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't I take can... it hard anymore because, like, when when I see Lando call Leia Lair, I'm like, all right, anything can get by. <laughs> well, you get Han and Savage and Savage Opress. <laughs> yeah, Han and Han in the same movie. Like, it, <laughs> they are not too particular about pronunciation. In right. Wars. Right. So Markeon um, Rowe, huh? Well, I still hope, Markeon. man. I'm praying. Like that's that'll be my first. If if I'm right, like I think this might be my first. I called it. <laughs> yeah. No. Should make the disclaimer. We have no idea if he is Sith or not. Uh, it is right. entirely supposition. Right. Yeah. This is a full on beyond the films uh, speculation that we're. I I'll, I'll say I'm praying happens. I think Jim would just be excited if it happens. But I'm. I'm investing myself in this theory. <laughs> <laughs> I take what they give me. That's always the way, the best way to go. I find take what they give you. Um, you can hope for what you want, but right. don't expect it to happen. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, Jim, do we have anything else we want to chime in on uh, the test of courage or anything else on the high Republic before we wrap it up? No, I think I pretty much uh, said my piece on it. I, like I said, I really like to test of courage. I really like, all the stories, like even Light of the Jedi, and right now is my, I, I think Into the Dark is my favorite of these three books, then A Test of Courage, and then Light of the Jedi. And even Light of the Jedi, um, even at the bottom of the pile, is still absolutely fantastic, which mm-hmm. kind of kind of tells you where the other ones fit as uh, in relation to everything else. So I'm, I'm still super excited to see where we go from here, although we're not getting another High Republic book until I'm going to guess June, but I could double check that right now. Oh, man, that's going to be a long way. I think that's probably going to be the only downside about this. And, and you know, thinking about how the New Jedi Order rolled out, that will be about right. Because I remember between releases, I would go back and reread Vector Prime up to the next book each time. And I was able to do that up until Destiny's Way. And at that point... I could, there were too many books to reread between the releases at that point. I was like, I can't do it no more. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm enjoying this. I'm, I'm looking forward to where we're going. And man, like, there's so much potential here that this could be a great story or this could be an epic story. Um, but I don't think it's going to be a flop. Um, if you're still on the fence about checking this stuff out, 
hey, understandable. Uh, but I don't think this is like WandaVision where the first three episodes are like, what is going on? And then you get to the fourth one and it brings <laughs> you back. Like, I feel like this one is like putting it all out there right from the get go. And it's this if you read Light of the Jedi and a Test of Courage and if you don't have an interest in this, then tap out. Uh, I think if by the time you've read these two books, it will interest You'll you. You'll know where you stand. Right, right. If, if you're interested at all, then you're going to enjoy this ride. But if you've read these two books and it's not working, then yeah, you're right. It, this is definitely not the series for you. I think that within these first two books, A Test of Courage and Light of the Jedi, though, I mean, it gives you enough of an idea of what's coming um, that you would still probably be wondering what the threat to the galaxy is. But don't worry. Just get into the dark and, and you'll find out what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah so from what it seems like future books uh, the next one is the end of june uh which is race to crash point tower um but also listed as a middle grade novel so i'm assuming the same size as this one right now it touched a courage and then we have two books in july the adults the rising storm by kevin scott mm. um and then the end of july is out of the shadows by justina ireland um who wrote this book but that's a young adult book so uh Probably on par to Into the Dark um, writing style and uh, book release. And then the continuation of the comics and the young or the, the short fiction in Insider uh, will continue going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now that about wraps up this episode of star wars beyond the films we'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom remember you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the star wars report website second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com episodes are also available on zoom stitcher as well as spotify and itunes and as always we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it you can find links to our episodes on both our twitter and facebook pages at Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's literally the best way to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars questions or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can also email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, uh, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starsport, you get a free trial run of Audible to see what it's all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars universe, the Legends universe, or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book flat out hate. That's because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. They don't even care if you just didn't like it. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, has been Mark and Whistler. And Jim. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that I'll be able to convert my galaxy's edge lightsaber into a light whip. Ooh. Ooh, now I want one. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just imagine how many kids would get hurt with one of those at the park? <laughs> My eye. Oh, Just be glad it wasn't a real lightsaber. You'd have a cauterized eye right now. 